0: Welcome to The Lateral Dialogues, a podcast series by The Lateral Space.
1: We aspire to bring a different or novel perspective on every topic by hosting guests whose
0: ideas push our existing or mainstream thinking further. Welcome to The Lateral Dialogues. My name is Warden Hoffman, co founder of The Lateral Space, a consultancy that focuses on organizational and team collaboration. I will pass it on to my colleague, Petro Zarathis, to introduce this month's topic and the guest of you, we are very excited to have today with us. In today's podcast, we will
1: focus on the impacts of conflict, particularly geopolitical and social, like the current situation in Gaza or the ongoing war in Ukraine, and our ability to engage in social dialogue on these topics with a focus on how we can talk about these topics inside organizations. For this topic, in this episode, we have with us Bijan Hazepour, co-president of the International Dialogue Initiative and Regina Scholz, director of training uh, of the International Dialogue Initiative. The International Dialogue Initiative is a group of multidisciplinary experts who strive to understand and thereby help to overcome the psychological barriers to peaceful resolution of conflict between communities, nations, and cultures. Bijan and Regina, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And and maybe before we engage in the dialogue, uh, Bijan, as
2: co-president, c- could I ask you to say also a little bit about IDI? Yes, thank you. Uh, as you said, IDI is a multidisciplinary network of experts. We have mainly political psychology as the main discipline, but we also have people with backgrounds and expertise in diplomacy, in international relations, in management. And basically this group has been brought together to lead a psychologically informed uh, dialogue about conflicts and through that dialogue to identify potential conflict resolution approaches. So um, it is basically a, a process that is based on dialogue and understanding of different perspectives including psychological perspectives to conflict.
1: Maybe it's good to say already at this point how uh, we got to know you. So Vardin and I, a few years ago, we did attend one of the trainings that you offer. The one that we attended was relating to the impacts of geopolitical conflict and how to apply a certain methodology of bringing groups of different communities who are actively engaged in conflict in creating dialogue and have a social impact. Regina, I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about some of those uh, initiatives before we move on.
3: Thank you, petra's um, IDI, besides uh, of the trainings, doesn't up till now, maybe that will change over time, doesn't have own projects. Among us, we act as a sounding board for projects that our members uh, sometimes do. In the trainings, it's just making people aware that everybody is is in the game. Nobody is outside of the game of large group identity issues, and that they play into uh, how we look at this or that conflict uh, in the world or near a community, because usually we tend to think about who is right and who is wrong and not so much uh, what are the dynamics and what are the drivers of the dynamics. And for that, these trainings are, and I'm very glad to see you both again, or hear you both again here, which long time ago you were in the training. so something is developing from the trainings.
1: Absolutely. We took a lot out of that as citizens of the world, but definitely also as organizational consultants and therefore definitely we recommend anyone who has similar sensitivities to join. Maybe to, to frame a little bit about why we thought this is a timely topic, uh, certainly since October and the atrocities that happen in Israel and Gaza uh, have affected all of us. We have encountered the difficulty of not only following the news, but also discussing about the situation um we can very quickly see, even in our closest circle, that the moment we go a little bit deeper into what is going on, we might follow into the trap of who is right and who is wrong, which side might be justified in their actions, which side is in the right of history, and very quickly it's very hard to you know take a step back and discuss into something into into its full complexity so We both have encountered this in our private lives. We encounter it in social media when trying to nuance a little bit the dialogue. And then in the professional life, when you're dealing with people who are directly affected, when the organizations that they work in have to take certain actions, they might find themselves in a very difficult situation. Very quickly, it goes either into a polarized discussion Or in order to avoid polarization, we might find ourselves not naming anything and becoming so politically correct that it's almost an empty discussion. So the key question for today is, can we really talk about these topics?
0: Thank you, Petros, for this introduction. We are talking about the impact of this large political conflict on people uh, on a, in a daily life, in a professional life. How does it show up in your life? How is the current situation in the world? How is it present in your daily life, in your professional life?
2: The best description um, I've heard of what happened on the 7th of October and since, and it's, there are similarities also to the Russian attack on the Ukraine and other major conflicts was that it was an emotional earthquake. And similar to physical earthquakes where where we lose orientation and we don't know how to react, and then we are always scared of the the aftershocks and tremors and so on, we are dealing with an emotional earthquake that touches all of us, both uh, individually, but also, as you said, through organizations, our clients, in my work for example where outside IDI I'm a strategy consultant we also have a lot of clients who are in the region through this emotional earthquake all of us feel emotions that we may not necessarily be able to explain immediately anger there is a lot of anger being felt right now that is related to this to these events and and we sometimes catch ourselves reacting differently to to situations or to statements or to narratives and we suddenly see dimensions that we haven't felt before there is sadness there is disbelief and and so all of these emotions are hitting us hitting people who are connected to us who are around us clients colleagues and so on it's definitely a struggle to understand it correctly understand that dimension and try to react to it uh, now in the language of uh, IDI in a psychologically informed manner so that we actually understand what causes these emotions and that we actually cannot, as as Petra said, cannot just stand there and try to be politically correct, but we have to find patterns and and tools to actually be able to differentiate between these different uh, dimensions and to react to them in a responsible way. And, And I hope that through this conversation, we can discuss about some of these approaches and some of these tools, because I do believe that there are ways to basically observe our responsibility, both as managers, as consultants, as friends, to be able to react to these emotions.
0: You have an Iranian background. Can you maybe share how that, because it it touches all of us, but I can also imagine that from your Iranian perspective, there might also be a different way of of looking at it than than most of us in the West, for example, look at it. Could you maybe share a bit of that?
2: Sure. My Iranian background, and also especially because of the position that Palestine and the Palestinian issue and Israel uh, as a sort of strategic enemy of Iran has had in our psychology, as Iranians, uh, my large group identity is definitely more affine to, to the Palestinian side of the current conflict. And I have to be very careful that my Iranian background and my large group identity does not push me into a, this whole black and white analysis of the situation. Because as I said, there are emotional, there are psychological elements and dimensions to this conflict that we all have to work to understand, and we cannot do it on our own. So I, as the Iranian-European, now I've become an Austrian, so an Iranian-European who tries to look at this conflict or any other conflict, I have to be very careful um, not to allow my large group identity, which exists, all of us have these large group identities, to determine, my my analysis and my understanding of the of the situation so it it's an additional challenge to to develop a balanced uh, view and a balanced idea and and my way of dealing with it is to base my assessment on moral values rather than on cultural values and cultural affinities because once you manage to develop a moral assessment of what's happening then it is exactly what petro said earlier then we try to act as global citizens rather than one that is atta- attached only to one large group identity.
0: Thank you, Bijan. For you, Regina, and because also in, I think in your, in your work in IDI, uh, you see a lot of nationalities, you see a lot of people around you. How does it show up for you, Regina? How do you feel personally about this and how does it show up in the work that you do?
3: Of course, I see very many people from uh, different countries. Uh, My little private practice, meanwhile, uh, is uh, known that most of my therapies uh, have something to do with trauma on different scales, but also those uh, people who are not in this area of problems, what I feel is everybody is so tensed. They are angry. They are afraid. They are, uh, feel despair. The whole uh, spectrum, and it's it's more intensive than uh, it used used to be, just in in average. But that's what I experience in my uh, professional life and in my uh, private life. The tension is so high. You just I always have the feeling I just have to put a needle, and then it will explode. But thinking a bit more about this phenomena uh, is. How should we not be affected? It's so normal. If you have a such large scale and so, in a way, sudden horrible events, as the 7th of October, as uh, the attack on the Ukraine, it came as a shock. Nobody, It was not expected. In retrospect, you can think, why didn't you expect it? It had to explode one day. But it came as a shock and so horrible. But if you have these large-scale shocks, Bidram was uh, referring to it as an earthquake. I think it's a very good picture for that. What you have is large-scale trauma, and trauma always elicits a certain tendency towards urgency. Something has to be done Im- immediately. You have to do something to come out of the helplessness, of the despair, of or of, of whatever. I think it's very important to, to know that this is a normal reaction because otherwise you go very quickly to, to, to the next steps and then you do something and it's not always the best what you do there.
0: You said that feeling that you have to do something you feel the earthquake and then you get this urge of, of you have to be involved or you have to do something about it or you have to maybe take a stand or take a position. How do you see that showing up in our society and especially maybe also the social media that we are, of course, a part of, that we see every day, the news? How have you experienced that, And how did you see these communication patterns change?
3: It's it's, uh, these communication patterns. You have to do something immediately. You have to take sides. You saw something about the polarization you you, you already mentioned. When you have to take sides, of course, there is only black and white, who's good, who's bad. So the differentiations are lost, there's no thought uh, given, and therefore I think uh, what you mentioned, uh, I guess Petrus, this was in your introduction, you oppose polarization uh, towards political correctness. I would challenge this because political correctness comes when you have polarization. Inside the in-groups, you have to be politically correct. And the other in-group, you also have to be political correct, but it's just the opposite from the, from the content. If there is an urge for political correctness, you already have the polarization. So uh, inside Ukraine, you cannot say at the moment, okay, maybe it was not, so, not such a good idea, but that won't work for the time being. If you are at the point where the political correctness, polarization already has happened. And polarization means us and them, good and bad. It has something to do with identifications to which side I'm more identified due to personal history, uh, to my upbringing, religious affiliations or whatever. In in the case of major trauma, what you want is security. And so the, the last thing that you can have at that moment is security. You try to arrange your world again in, in us and them. And of course it's done from the outside too. A war uh, by definition is us and them. And then, uh, means, and that c- c- comes to uh, this new point of blaming, is nothing good can be with them. All the good is on my side, on my group, and all the bad is on the other side, on the other group. Then, of course, I blame the other uh, group for they have done all the bad in the world, which in a certain way, of course, illusionary, brings me out of the state of helplessness. Somebody has done it and somebody now has to be fought, that he cannot do many more evil things. That gives me also some feeling of agency when I can say, okay, it was you.
2: I think these events, whether it's the attack on Ukraine or the current conflict uh, and crisis in Gaza, for the individual citizen who looks at these events, uh, we can describe it as Impossible complexity and uncertainty of of international geopolitics. And it's a complexity that, in my view, even our politicians can't manage, let alone the average citizen. If you are in this situation of complexity and uncertainty, as Regina said, you are looking for security, you are looking for certainty. And creating a simplified understanding, a black and white understanding, a polarized understanding of that complexity, gives you a certain feeling of security, even though it doesn't change the geopolitical realities. But at least in your own world, you feel that, you know, yes, I've managed to understand and here I'm on this side. And then unfortunately, because of the domination of social media, which then also tries for simplification, because if you only have 160 characters, there is not much more you can say about a conflict or about a you lose the nuances, you lose those layers of of complexity and and also move towards simplicity. This simplification of realities, of geopolitical complexity, is definitely a factor that adds to the current emotional and and psychological realities that we are dealing with, whether it's in our family, in our workplace, in our larger community, and so on.
1: This is very helpful, what you both say. It, It makes me think about maybe to illustrate this psychological process, it makes me think about COVID and the pandemic, where at the very early stages, the whole of humanity experienced some sort of compassion and I could say even intimacy, maybe of course, overall fear and grief that happened with the early lives lost. But then very quickly, this helplessness was transitioned into actual, a, a lot of aggression being directed in different groups. Whether that was who to be blamed for the origins of that, or maybe the governments who are imposing measures, or maybe, you know, however we related to the vaccine policy, there was a lot of aggression that started getting direct. And again, we had this issue that, however we were personally oriented on those topics, we found ourselves having to fight each other. It makes me understand this idea of being traumatized by a collective event, going into a state of helplessness, and then having the urge to find someone to blame and fight it as a psychological process of stepping out of uh, helplessness.
3: What makes things more painful is the fact if you have a major trauma, it also stirs up old traumata, whatever it, it may be for a special person or a special community then you don't stay with uh, what already is uh, bad enough with the uh, recent situation. Then the whole history, personal, biographically, or uh, historically comes up. Ukraine, Russia, both sides always refer to World War II. Gaza, Israel, the Israeli side, of course, always refers to the Holocaust. So it comes up, it comes up, it comes up. What every trauma, being it, only personal or for many persons, uh, in a collective way, because collective trauma I have to live by persons, is it also destroys our view of the world. We all live with uh, some narcissistic illusions. That means we all, on a deeper level, of course, not intellectually well well educated people, but anyhow, on a deeper level, we all think that we are invulnerable as long as nothing happens to us, We all think we are invulnerable and we we need this protection it's a protection shield, otherwise, you couldn't go over the streets being afraid you know, something will fall on your head and if something bad happens, bad things only happen to bad people that's the other illusion and if you make the circle is as long as I'm not a bad person, of course I'm not bad, other, only other people, of course I'm not bad, as long as I uh, hold to certain, more or less to certain uh, moral standards, nothing bad will happen to me. And if I have fulfilled all these duties, nothing bad, bad can happen to me. And, and then everything happens. All these illusions are shattered into
2: pieces. I want to say one thing about the the corona crisis because uh, Petros was correct. The corona crisis was another complex situation that that put a lot of pressure on on multiple layers of our societies and political structures and so on. But there is one important psychological element which we need to understand during the corona crisis. And I learned this from our founder, Vamik Volkan himself who said, during the corona crisis, we all lost something. We all lost something, but sometimes we didn't know what we lost. We lost some of our freedoms. Vamik would say uh, he lost the ability to hug his grandchildren. That is also something that you lose. But it was a process of loss without being able to grieve for your loss. So these psychological elements are so important in in understanding some of these uh, complex situations. And we need to address these issues also right now. We know we have to address these issues if we want to help our colleagues, our friends, our family to understand in in, in this case, what I can tell you about large group identity. And and in a sense, it was also clear in in my own uh, case when I was talking about the large group identity that I belong to because of my Iranian background. Sometimes our large group identity is, clashes with our own individual identity. So we are actually dragged in in two different uh, directions in how we feel. We may individually feel something about a specific uh, situation, may also have certain analysis analysis of of the patterns of of a specific conflict. But the moment we join a larger group, whether it's virtual or, or physical, that shares our large group identity, then we, we are basically put into that other identical, identity framework. And that is where a lot of confusion happens. A lot of the emotions that we can't understand right now about the current situation are a result of the clash between these two identity levels. And, and we need to help ourselves and, again, everyone else to understand these clashes by talking about them large group identity, not banning any type of discussion on these levels because they actually exist and they guide us. Maybe to to catch on
0: to that, and I was also triggered by the idea of good against bad and if if we are all good and they're all bad. And I had to think about my son. I have a 14-year-old son and every evening I read him a book. In the last couple of years, we read Harry Potter, uh, we read The Lord of the Rings, and what he asked me actually a couple of weeks ago, we were almost finishing Lord of the Rings, he was puzzled because he said, Daddy, in the whole Israel-Gaza conflict, as far as he could understand it as a 14-year-old boy, who is Mordor? So who who are the bad guys? I realized that actually in our upbringing, we are always brought up with, with the good guys and the bad guys, and the bad guys are all good, all bad, and the good guys are all good, and I think we always identify ourselves with the good guys. I mean, no one identifies himself reading Lord of the Rings as they are. I want to be an orc. We always want to be like uh, the flaming knight with the white shield. If you have that as a given, I mean, then it's it's already something that we are brought up with as a child. And I had to think about it. You you named it already, Bijan, the idea of large group identity, which is very present, of course, in these books. Maybe can we say something about that? What is a large group identity? And maybe how does it play out in these kind of conflicts? And also how does it play out in this tension between good and bad and all good and all bad?
3: Our identities have something to do with our belongings. Who am I and where do I belong? That are the two main questions in identity formation. Maybe a a little bit uh, history. The man who coined the uh, expression or term uh, Identity was Eric Erickson, and he de- defined it as a feeling of sameness for the individual person. I am, of course, I have, now I have more experiences, but in a core of myself is the same. So, uh, when I was 10 years old, or if I am 60 years old, so I'm the same person in a certain way. That's, that's a feeling of identity. Bamik Morkan built on that concept and said, okay, there's a large group identity that means, uh, religious, ethnic, national, that binds together thousands and millions of people who have never met each other, who have never seen each other, but they share some basic mental uh, dispositions, let's put it that way. And I think it's very interesting that most persons who made the foundations of the identity theory are immigrants. So they were away from their natural identity. So so they could see it from outside to a certain degree. Only when something is not self-evident anymore than you can see it, you have to step outside. That said, I would want to connect to this uh, point about large group identity and personal identity, because that is tricky. You don't have any uh, personal identity outside of a large group identity, and of course there is no large group identity with personal identities. I sometimes compare that with a kylidoscope. You know, this children's uh, toy, you look through, and when you just move it a little bit, you have a different picture some fancy colors uh, with some fancy patterns. And when you move it a little bit, then you have different colors and and different patterns uh, that come up. But all these possibilities are already in this box. Depending on the situation, the large group identity is more in the background. You feel more being a father, a mother, man, woman. uh, You have your professional uh, identity and so on your large group identity more um, um, in the background. When it is activated, it can be activated by a big feast. You have national feasts or you have religious feasts and uh, you join there and then you feel co- connected to all the people who all, also are there. Then you f- may feel this uh, large group identity in a certain, uh, this time, positive way. But the, of course, the latest m- moment that you feel it is when there is a conflict then we have many people who go to war and they they go as volunteers because they feel an inner urge. I have to do it for my country, for whatever. When there is a conflict, large group identity immediately pops up. That has very much to do with this belonging.
1: A question that came up for me when I heard you speaking is that some of us, might be very attached to our large group identity. For example, I am, I am Greek. I have lived abroad and my Greekness may have increased over time when being abroad. But maybe if I compare myself to someone who lives in Greece that can be very nationalistic, that can be very defensive about their origin, it can also be very different. So could you say a little bit more about why are there different degrees of that large group identity?
3: Some years ago, I read a figure of t- 2.43 um, billion people who are not uh, living in uh, the country of their origin or the origin of their parents. How do uh, large group identities develop in different surroundings, also with intermarriages? What about the children? What about the grandchildren? There are people, and mostly they then live also in um, more or less close communities in the, um, let's say, guest country, if that's the right word, probably not, that they become more nationalistic. They ever would have been in in if they had stayed in, or could have stayed in in their home country, because they, they want to protect their identity. They want to protect themselves against the seduction or the influence, at least, of the country where they are now living in, whereas others constantly struggling with what is right, what is wrong, what, what, what I'm doing, letting the new influences in, uh, but have to find uh, some kind of integration in, inside of themselves, of the different elements or oscillating between different elements of the identity construction, uh, whatever. Erickson once said, for the identity, migration is suicide.
1: So basically, I think what comes up for me when when you say this is when the experience of not belonging becomes very strong for me, I might be seeking to connect again with my large group identity. Or if external events like the ones that we are discussing now create a sense for me that my large group identity is under attack. I might also have a very strong response wanting to maybe protect that large group identity.
2: I would describe it, Petrus, this way, that our our own relationship with our own uh, large group identity changes depending on the environment we are in. How many other members of that large group identity are there? As you say, do we have to defend our large group identity against others? So a Greek person in Greece doesn't really have to defend his Greekness in the society, in his environment, but a Greek in other parts of Europe or other parts of the world will have to defend and feel a different responsibility towards a large group identity because of the migration factor, as, as Regina mentioned. So it's not a constant, but it's a factor that we have to understand and we have to consider when we want to try to understand some of our own reactions and our own emotions. If we were to take
1: the Israeli-Gaza conflict as an example, if I had a religion that relates, so whether I would be Muslim or a Jew, then I could perhaps be mobilized by the events because I could perceive that my large group identity from a religious standpoint is under attack, or I feel more attached to one of both sides. But we see all of us being mobilized. So, for example, in Greece, the non-Jews or the non-Muslims are being mobilized to take sides, and sometimes very fanatically about either side. So could you say a little bit about that?
3: I think two factors are at work here. One is uh, generally, if it happens there, it can happen everywhere. So it also touches my feeling of security or my confidence uh, in the world or whatever. That's one uh, thing. The other thing is identification. And what I said before, uh, that older traumata are popping up again and Greece has a very Violent history, as far as I know, and uh, occupied uh, by the Ottomans, occupied by the Germans. A difficult uh, history uh, with the British after World War Two, also uh, with the then Soviet, Soviet Union playing a, a role in there. To put it posit- positively, there is a potential of compassion due to own suffering. But as they put on their uh, compassion more to the one side or one to, to the other, okay, is another question.
2: I would only add that we may side by one of with one of the large group identities because we think they are right and they should be supported, they are the victims, and that takes us back again to this notion of safety emotional safety because we feel safer because if we side with the other group, then we may be subject to attacks and critical comments by others, especially in this Social media world, where it's very easy to attack someone on, and unlike someone or like someone, and that for me is a is a question. What, how do we get to the point where we side with uh, one of the identities? There are two different motivations, and both of them are at play in my. Opinion.
0: Thanks for this discussion. And I, I want to kind of slowly move us towards a space where we can think about, okay, so how, how can we deal with this? And how can we deal with this as, as a listener, as, as, as a human being? And I was struck by what you said, Bijan, at the, at the start of this recording, where you said, well, I, t- I try to base my behavior and my ideas around my moral values and not on my cultural values. And, and I can imagine with the discussion we just had about the large group identity, that it becomes very difficult to see that these two might be different because I think your moral values will be largely shaped by your large group identity and and, and your peer group. They will define the morals uh, and the values that you work with. Basically, when you're in this large group identity and basically in this feeling of safety and, and, and like this site where you feel you belong, how can you from there basically work maybe towards a moral set of values that can maybe lift you out of this peer group?
2: It's a very important question, and, and I think we need to, we as people who are trying to um, develop uh, mechanisms uh, and, and, and and tools to uh, move different conflict parties out of the situation, we have to be able to develop some patterns that everyone accepts. For example, if we say our moral value, my personal moral value or the moral value of our organization, of our family, is, for example, to focus on humanitarian values. Then we have to basically criticize both actions. We have to say the attack on the 7th of October was in humanitarian terms, a big offense, a big crime, and we have to criticize it. But then also say in humanitarian terms, Israel's attacks on Gaza and the killing of civilians and children and, and so on is also a major crime. So we cannot just criticize one side and say justify the other side's actions which are human humanitarian and moral values, exactly the same. And we have to have the courage to say this and, and to communicate this. We cannot, as Petra said at the beginning, just focus on what is politically correct, but rather than it clashes with our moral values, We can always say there are traumata and psychological elements that lead to these factors. For example, I learned from our own IDI Israeli member who explained that when you are in a trauma, especially in this trauma that many Israelis are in, of this feeling and existential threat, that in that trauma, feelings like guilt and shame don't exist anymore. We have to learn this, that some of the actions are happening because there is no feeling of shame. There is no feeling of guilt. There is just a feeling of righteousness. And we were attacked, so we have to respond. But we as the third party that is there, that is trying to help resolve the conflict, we have to base our values, uh, our our decisions, our, our analysis on moral values, and and it can go on, as I said, you know, it can be humanitarian values, it can we can say international law, we can say that the norm should be international law, what is now clashing with international law. And we cannot just when if we say international law has to be obeyed, then it has to be obeyed by, by everyone. You know, we can't just say just one side of the conflict will have to abide by international law, the other side is just excuse. So my feeling is. If we go along with um, large group identity and psychological framing of conflicts, we are not going to get anywhere. We have to basically move beyond those, and one way of moving beyond those is defining certain values that we observe in every single conflict.
1: But isn't that exactly how it starts to become so complex? Because. I mean, in my view, the part of the population who engages in this dialogue out of a humanitarian sensitivity very quickly can find themselves being polarized in the discussion because based on their moral compass, they might start to getting confused of what's right and what's wrong. Because actually, even on a diplomatic or political standpoint, these are very difficult situations. So, for example, you could say, there is military interventions required to combat the terrorism of Hamas, or there, there is, uh, for example, a need for resolution required because Palestinians have been suffering for a long time. So, so very quickly, not, not to say that people would immediately justify atrocities, but it's very hard then to lose the compass because a practical resolution of a situation makes you disoriented, makes you think, maybe I should support who I perceive to be here weaker, or who I perceive here not having any other option. I wonder whether that's also a difficulty that we have, that regardless of our own ideology or large group identity, we miss a little bit the plot because we are actually motivated by
2: needing to support a certain resolution. I fully agree, Petros. The complexity doesn't reduce because we talk about uh, value-based assessment. But that's exactly the need for dialogue. You know, that's why our our group is called International Dialogue Initiative. We cannot do it on our own. No matter how much we try and, and say my assessment is going to be based on on values and and I'm not not going to miss anything. No, we are going to miss things because of, as I said, we are dragged by a large group identity into one direction and, and maybe our values will push us into another direction. And that is why we need dialogue. We need to engage. We need to talk about these different feelings, the different urgency to do something. Those who need to do something, they should talk to each other and find whether there are actions that all of us would like to do. For example, we can say we have to save the children from this conflict. I would be very surprised if anyone would turn around and say, no, we are not going to save this. Okay, we can save less. And if all of those potential actions come together and we can, in a dialogue format, uh, identify patterns that would Basically, feed everyone's sense of urgency, then we focus on those because otherwise we won't contribute constructively to resolving the conflict at all.
3: Well, our topic here is large group identity. So we are focusing on the psychological factors, and rightly so, for other uh, questions, I wouldn't be uh, the right person uh, to interview. When we have a war and we have it, it's very clear. This is the moment that the war starts. Maybe it's the first day some uh, of the soldiers don't want to fight, but latest after the first uh, of their comrades is shot there, uh, they are in the middle of uh, of the game, and then there is no thinking about large group identities, this or that, then they go through. And as you quoted uh, the Israeli colleague, without shame and uh without guilt feelings. Otherwise, they couldn't go to war. So we all always have to look at where are we on the timeline of a conflict? Where all the other uh, elements can uh, come in that also can be in, in negotiations, but we are not uh, the negotiations, maybe some others. Then there could be uh, some negotiation. Would it be possible to, uh, to get the children out and with that moral appeal, acting for moral values? But for for, for the rest, uh, there there is no much space for that. But for me, what's very important is what is happening around, let's say, Israel, Gaza or Ukraine, Russia. But we have all these discussions, debates, and sometimes hopefully only verbal fights nearly everywhere at the moment. In every working team, in every family, with with friends, wherever you go, if you want to provoke a discussion about uh, these topics, you have it immediately. And even if you don't want to provoke it, somebody else does. I think it's very important to emphasize, also when you want to deal with it, sorry, we are here not the persons who have to decide that. So why do we fight? Perhaps starting a conversation, if you have good luck, Starting a conversation, why are we so identified? Why do do we fight at the moment? Why do we risk our company, our organization, with these discussions that are in this context completely dysfunctional?
0: A large part of the topic, of course, was about how, how do organizations, how can they deal with this? And I think you gave a piece of the puzzle there already. Can you maybe say a bit more on if, if, you, if you're leading an organization, if you're leading a team where these uh, large groups of identity maybe come together or where there's trauma from the past entering the team because of these conflicts, how, how could you deal with that? How, how should you be aware of that?
3: If I take that seriously, that means uh, when this uh, workforce is multi- uh, multicultural, multinational, then they bring us in all the, all the histories of their countries or their parents' countries of origin. As Bijan said in the beginning, that he, coming originally from Iran, has a different view from Palestine as a, as a mainstream view in Europe. Perhaps they also have personal traumatic histories in by the refugees or by the parents' refugees or whatever. That's a little bit what you have to expect. I guess you deal with it already on a day-to-day basis uh, in, uh, let's say, better times when there is no war, when you have a multinational uh, composed workforce. So, But you can use all these skills that you're already trained in that context. So that's where you can build on. Of course, due to all these tensions uh, that are growing and growing and growing, you need much more to concentrate yourself
1: in normal situations, even members of historically conflictuous backgrounds in organizational settings, actually they have a possibility to come close to each other beyond the work situation to discover a little bit of their each other's backgrounds. And, and that can actually be very constructive contacts within organizations, within multinational organizations, at least that's also has been my experience. But the the problem becomes, especially later, in later years, when organizations, one way or another, have to take a stance in multiple occasions. So, for example, with Black Lives Matter, it's it's not a geopolitical conflict, but it is a social conflict. It's a racial conflict. There was a lot of mobilization of organizations to take a stance, to make statements. And quickly what emerges is that with some situations, some global situations, organizations decide to take a stance. With others, they don't. With the war- the conflict in, in Ukraine, there were actually sanctions that ser- several multinationals actually proceeded. But recently, in, in one workshop that was not related on this topic, but this person mentioned that in the current conflict, she would have expected that there will be a statement that actually would be nuanced uh, about the, the war in Israel, that it would be nuanced. And she found that her own national identity was not protected by the organization. That's where you see very quickly that it can become very difficult for top management of an organization to say, when do we actually
2: step in? our public statements and when do we not step in? Since we are talking about how to manage an organization, I think both before a a crisis starts, but also during a crisis, I would say, first of all, generally, since the geopolitical realities are producing so much complexity and uncertainty, one of the first rules in organizations should be that the organization should have as little complexity and as little uncertainty as possible to compensate for some of the pressures that the individuals are feeling because of external uncertainty. So, and part of this certainty and, and, and non-complexity, if you want to call it that way, is that we have certain uh, rules for the organization. When I mentioned the value-based approach, it could be a rule for the organization. That would mean, for example, in this current crisis, that uh, instead of trying to side with one of the conflict parties, the organization focuses on humanitarian organizations that are involved in the conflict. Save the Children is involved on both sides. It's not just involved on one, one side. Whatever, UNICEF is, is you know, in both sides and we can help those Humanitarian organizations rather than trying to side with one of the warring parties or conflict parties. The other factor is just also inside the organization to promote the culture of dialogue. Part of the structure could be that whenever there is a conflict situation that touches the large group identities in the organization or is important to to us as as a group, we will have weekly open dialogue sessions with all the staff who can participate. For example, if someone tries to bring it up during that week, we can say, can you keep it please for our meeting on Friday afternoon where we all come together to talk about the latest developments, your feelings, your preferences of how the company can act. And then once the proposal comes for an action, then we immediately test that action against our values. Is that in line with the values that we have defined as an organization? So there is an element of basically the the organization's identity as well that we have to develop and not allow large group identities of some of our staff members or trauma of other staff members to put the organization into a trauma situation. But to say, no, our organization has these certain structures, I'm not talking about a situation where we have absolutely no flexibility. For example, you mentioned the corona crisis. In the corona crisis, you could not have foreseen all the different issues of public health and other issues that may come in. So you have to have a certain degree of flexibility always. But that flexibility, that what you develop as an organizational rule should happen through dialogue with the members of that organization, rather than just the management board sitting together and saying, we are going to side with this group or we are going to make an announcement that will alienate your staff members and create actually another layer of sensing insecurity and complexity. So your organization has to be a strong balance to the uncertainties that are that are being felt from the outside. I
3: think there is no overall solution. It depends on the company. It depends on the persons on the atmosphere, also on the task of the um, of the company. It's it's something else if you have a company uh, producing weapons uh, or if you have a a consulting uh, agency. If everybody wants to engage in some charity project, for example, for uh, Save the Children, or is it too much for for that company? One uh, difference for me is very uh, important is when do I act as an employee of this, this company, even as a CEO? And when do I act as a citizen? As a citizen, I can go to the demonstrations, sending letters to my deputy, joining whatever group is appropriate to, to my opinions, going to vote, whatever. So that's my possibilities, maybe my task as a citizen. That's not my task in the company. As far as possible, I would try not to leave anybody alone just to to have some dialogue not to uh, to to kill the dialogue but uh not to promote it too much and for and for the end there is no perfect uh, solutions just to make sure it's normal now that everybody is nervous and to try first to bring this nervousness a little bit down if that works we have done a lot
2: I would add just two very quick points. One is connected to what uh, Regina said. It's normal to be affected by situations of this amount of complexity and and uncertainty. So to give our staff members that feeling, it's absolutely normal. Even we as managers and directors and so on feel that anxiety right now. So don't feel excluded. Don't hide any of those feelings. And that's the second point is when we talk about dialogue I agree with Regina that there is no sort of golden formula that every organization can adopt you know that we we have to basically take organizational and other aspects in, into account but once we try to adopt dialogue for addressing some of these issues or tensions or emotions within the organization also try to use that dialogue for each group to understand why the other group may actually be right. This is very important. Rather than to use the dialogue to justify yourself, to actually listen to why the other group could be right within what social, psychological, emotional situations the other group may also be right. And that opens up a space for understanding, for conflict resolution. Because if we just use the dialogue to just solidify our own position, and our own anger and emotion, then we haven't achieved much. We just, okay, we have created some transparency, but we have not created a new space. And that new space plus some degree of creativity are those elements that will help us enter into completely new spheres of conflict resolution.
0: If I look back to the discussion that we had in, in, in the last hour, the first thing that struck me, uh, Bijan, was how you talked about an emotional earthquake. And I think that sets the scene because that's that's rolling a bit over the, over the earth where we live on and we can all feel it. And then and we talked about that if this happens, we have the feeling that we have to take a stand. And then basically differentiation is lost because it, we, we want to make like a complex situation. We want to make it more simple. And in that perspective, polarization happens very quickly quickly. And uh, when the moment that polarization happens, the political correctness basically enters the room. We also talked about uh, trauma and how trauma brings in all trauma and basically then starts to roll and makes it bigger and bigger. I, I like the part where we talked about the large group identity, uh, where you, uh, Regina, defined it as, as basically a, a group yeah, where you can ask yourself, who am I and where, where do I belong? And You have this feeling of, of, of sameness. That's the word you used. And if this large group identity becomes basically bigger than your own identity, that's where the confusion happens. We also talked about the large group identity basically always present in the background, but it kind of is evoked the moment that something happens and it can be a national feast, but it can also be a conflict or a need for safety or crisis. I really enjoyed the last part of the discussion where we said, okay, so what 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 can we do about it? Uh, how can we work it? And Pijan, that's where you said, well, maybe we have to see how we can basically set a set of, uh, of moral values that grow beyond of the, of, the, of the values of just one large group identity. And so how can we set values that are true for both parties and values around, for example, child safety? I think that also marked the part where we talked about, okay, so how can we deal with this when we're leading a multinational organization, when we're leading teams with a lot of groups, a lot of identities present in one group. And the two things I got from there was first is to create as little complexity in the room to also compensate for uh, the complexity out of the room. And then again, see what are the values that we are as a team based on and what are the values that are overarching, where we can take a stand as an organization, as a group around things that are always right. And then, of course, and that's also, uh, I think, the, the, the idea of the IDI, the power of the dialogue, to bring in the dialogue and to think about, okay, It's normal that we feel nervous in these moments. And again, also in the dialogue, see if you can withhold yourself of always being right. But think about, okay, why might the other person be right and create understanding of each other? And maybe I want to close the summary by something you said. Okay, if if you are in a group, if you are in a team working, also realize that you're not deciding on this. You don't have to be on one side. You don't have to fight because of that. And I think that's a very powerful idea to understand. We are here together. We don't have to take a side. We don't have to fight because that's not our position at this moment. I would like to thank you both for all the insights that you gave and all the things that you shared. It was, for me, it was very insightful and I listened with a lot of curiosity and a lot of ahas. A way we would like to
1: close usually our episodes is by asking our guests to think if they would have a wish or an invitation for leaders in organizations, what would that be?
3: What I like very much, of course, uh, with a little smile is a sentence that's coming from uh, World War II from UK. Keep calm and carry on. And uh, I guess there are two traps that should be avoided as, po- as far as possible. That one is the pressure against, uh, that's come from this urgency. You have to take sides, do something. And the other one is taking sides prematurely at least, if you take side, it should be really a decision what you thought about for for a long time. And as Bijan said, uh, think about how the other side could be right.
2: I would like to recite a, a poem. This is actually a poem that is at the, at the entrance of the United Nations building, talking about the humanity. And then it's by the Iranian poet Saadi. And it reads, it goes like this. Human beings are members of a whole, in creation of one essence and soul. If one member is inflicted with pain, other members uneasy will remain. If you have no sympathy for human pain, the name of human you cannot pertain. We are all part of one, and it's important that that explains a lot of our feelings, a lot of our sadness in these situations, but also our responsibility to do something about it.
1: Bijan, Regina, thank you both very much. Uh, This was a very important uh, dialogue for us. We are very honored and delighted to have you here. And maybe we haven't resolved any of the issues of the world today, but maybe we have created some more space for people to think and maybe connect on them differently. Thank you both very much.